0: Hi, this is Oliver Stone, and I've just done a Books on Pod with Trey Elling about my memoir, Chasing the Light. It was a
1: very interesting set of questions Trey asked, and I think you'll enjoy the show.
0: Hello, readers. Art Bell is a former media exec who is best known for creating, building, and managing successful cable TV channels. This includes Comedy Central, an experience he details in the new book, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Art, thank you for the time. How are you doing today?
1: I'm good. Thank you very much for having me.
0: It's my pleasure, Art. So when and how did the idea of a channel dedicated to comedy only first come to you?
1: Well, I'll tell you, I loved comedy as a kid. And by the time I got to grad school, uh, it was the early 80s, and there were lots of new cable channels around. And I thought, hey, how come there's no 24-hour comedy channel? So it was around that time that I thought of it.
0: Your first foray into TV after getting that MBA was as a financial analyst for CBS TV stations. The job was very corporate and what you were doing felt pretty pointless. 12 months in or so, a former colleague called asking if you'd be interested in doing economic modeling for HBO. You jumped at that chance. What was HBO like when you got there in the (laughs) mid-1980s?
1: Well, it was a crazy, crazy place. I can sum it up by saying that everybody was so excited about the fact that they were working for a company that was really going to change television. And that's how they talked about it. We are going to change television.
0: I think that that prediction was pretty spot on what was all said and done, right?
1: Yeah, it was. And you know, I'll add one more thing was very successful at that point. I mean, it hadn't been around for very long, but it was very clear that HBO was going to be a huge success. They were making lots of money. They were trying to figure out what to do next. Their programming was excellent. They would really made a name for themselves. And everybody was, you know, like I said, everybody was so excited to be working there.
0: And HBO was successful enough. They were considering different ways to branch out. And that included something called Festival. What was Festival and why was it another important step in the progression of your idea of a channel committed to comedy?
1: Festival was a response by HBO to try and kind of mop up audience that they felt they weren't getting. And the reason they felt they weren't getting it is because some people didn't take HBO because they thought it had too much sex, violence, and bad language. So their solution was, okay, we'll just put a channel together that shows airline versions of movies so there won't be any cursing, there'll be a lot less sex and everything else. And it was a channel that you would feel comfortable having in your home, having your children watch, having in your living room. That was the idea. And a couple of things happened that were interesting. First of all, I got to travel around the country as we tested this concept and talk to lots and lots of people about how they watched television, what they thought of television, what they were looking for in television and how television was personal to them. The second thing I learned was that you should never underestimate the competition (laughs) because what happened is while we were putting festival together, another family oriented channel, the Disney channel was out there and they were really kind of set up for children, but then they saw us doing this for, the entire family and grownups, and they said, hey, we can do that. We got movies that grownups are going to like. And they completely changed their orientation and said, we are not a kid's channel. We are a family channel. And that was pretty much a devastating blow to us.
0: So this entire time, you still have the idea of this comedy channel in mind, and you actually eventually proposed that to HBO that they start a comedy channel. And you made this proposal to their head of original programming at the time, Bridget Potter, in 1987. How did she react to the idea?
1: (laughs) Well, she didn't quite throw me out of the office. She spent about (laughs) 15 minutes telling me why it was the world's worst idea, (laughs) why no comedians would ever appear on a 24-hour comedy channel, why nobody needed a 24-hour comedy channel, and the fact that HBO would never risk the reputation trying to put one together then she told me (laughs) she told me i didn't know very much about television since i hadn't been there very long and that was pretty much the end of the conversation i didn't have much to say
0: you know it's interesting when i think back to watching comedy central as a teenager in the 1990s i really was the wheelhouse for what you guys ended up realizing was your demographic that you needed to aim for I recall a lot of stand-up to go along with some really funny movies that you were showing over and over again. What was stand-up comedy like as an entertainment medium in the mid to late 1980s across the country?
1: Well, there were two channels that were known for stand-up comedy at that point. One was HBO. HBO was doing very highly produced, high-end comedy specials, one-hour comedy specials, with some of the best comedians around, including Robin Williams and Whoopi and Billy Crystal and Robert Klein and, you know, the A-List. And those were doing extremely well for HBO, partly because they were uncensored. And there hadn't really been a place on television for uncensored stand-up comedy. The other place, amazingly enough, that was known for stand-up comedy at that point was A&E. They were pretty much a fledgling channel trying to find their way. And they put a very inexpensive stand-up comedy show. It was basically a two-camera shoot, might have been a three-camera shoot, against a brick wall in a club. And they just rocketed new comedians, old comedians, anybody who wanted to stand up and talk (laughs) through that. And then they edited half-hour shows. And A&E played it every night at 7.30. Now, the advantage of playing something every night at 7.30 in those days was that, That show ends up just hanging there like a fog, you know, and everybody bumps into it eventually. So they got to be known for stand-up comedy, which was as ironic a thing as I can imagine. So one of the things I said to HBO at the time is, I said, look, you guys own comedy on television. The next best guy is A&E. You want them to take that away from you? (laughs) That was part of my pitch.
0: That's funny to think that A&E, considering what they ended up becoming, was one of the stops for stand-up comedy back then.
1: Yeah, no, it is funny. But it's been interesting to watch channels like A&E find their footing after originally staking their claim. A&E was an arts and entertainment channel. Which I guess is a pretty wide net, but they tried to be a little artsy in the beginning. I'm trying to think of some other examples of that. That's probably the best example of a channel. Well, other channels have wandered. I think Sci Fi started showing football games, which <laughs> made me laugh at the time. And I knew that president of Sci Fi at the time. I said, What the heck's going on? He said, Well, you know, corporate wants us to get some more ratings and they have these football games. So, but everybody was trying to find their footing. What kind of channel were they going to be?
0: So after Festival failed, you were a part of a team examining whether HBO should start an ad-supported cable channel, and while you were in between things, you were still champing at the bit to find someone interested in this idea that you knew had a chance to be really good, this comedy channel, even if that meant searching outside HBO. Why is a loping Nordic responsible for you taking a pretty enormous next step?
1: Well, first of all, I love the loping Nordic. He was my boss's boss. His name was Larry Carlson, and he had been at HBO pretty much from the beginning and was plugged into everybody there, knew everybody, very friendly guy, very funny guy, and really a friend to me. He literally walked by my office once as I was writing up what was essentially a letter to MTV Network saying, hey, I think I'm going to be out of a job because festival just shut down and I don't have that much to do. I've been trying to sell a comedy network around this place for a while and they haven't bitten. So what do you say? Will you interview me? I mean, it was literally a way to try and get another job. (laughs) So Larry comes in. He says, what are you doing? And I told him because I had no reason not to. He says, well, wait a second. That sounds like a pretty good idea. Have you talked to Bridget? Meaning Bridget Potter. And I laughed. I said, yeah, she didn't like it. (laughs) And then he said, well, let's go see the chairman. The chairman was Michael Fuchs. And I said, what, right now? And he said, Yeah, let's go. He's a friend of mine. He'll let us in. So we went to see Michael Fuchs. I had no presentation materials. I had no idea what I was going to say. And Michael said, Yeah, come on in. What's up? And I pitched the channel and he thought it was sounded like a good idea. Let's move ahead with it and see what happens.
0: One of the first things you were asked about was the cost of the new channel. And that's an understandable question. Of course, you had a pretty good solution to that. What was it?
1: Well, one of the basic objections to doing a comedy network is comedy is very writer intensive and even stand-up comics, you know, in those days when you're starting out in stand-up and these days too, if you get a good 7, 8, 10, 15 minutes of material together, you're really kind of moving along. So comedy was difficult. My idea was not to have a lot of original programming on the channel at first. My idea was to run short, comedy clips. And those clips could come from stand-up comedy, which was an obvious place to look. It could come from HBO's comedy specials. It could come from HBO's movie library. So if there was a funny scene in a movie that everybody's always talking about, you could cut that scene out of the movie, put it on TV. And then what you'd have is a collection of clips. You'd have the equivalent of what MTV was doing with video jocks. And you have comedians talking about their clips or talking about whatever they wanted to talk about and then say, hey, let's look at this Three Stooges thing. I really loved it when I was a kid. And that was the idea. Of course, we would also have movies and series and original comedy eventually, but we would get all these clips for free on the basis of they were promotional for whatever movie or television show they came from. So that was the idea, and it worked pretty
0: well. Who was Dick Bears, and why was he such an important addition to the team responsible for this potential new channel?
1: Dick Bears was another executive who had been at HBO for a very long time and knew everybody. And when the channel finally got the go ahead, they put a team in place and Dick was made president of the channel, which I think was not an obvious choice, but they made him president and he was my boss, essentially.
0: You and Dick end up pitching the channel to around 40 HBO execs, which you called your most important presentation since your bar mitzvah. And y'all nailed it. What was it like when Michael Fuchs, the chairman of HBO, told you he wanted it up and running by the end of the year?
1: Well, I mean, that was a heart-stopping moment for me. I don't know what the rest of the room was thinking, but I knew how difficult this thing was going to be to put together. I knew we had some giant obstacles, even obstacles to getting the clips because there was some resistance from the actors union and the director's guild. They weren't happy that we were making programming out of their work and not paying them for it. So I was saying, all right, listen, we got a great plan here, but it's not fully cooked yet. And getting it up in that period of time is going to take a monumental effort.
0: The original channel was not called Comedy Central. That came a little bit later on. What does the legendary and some would say infamous Mitzi Shore, owner of the Comedy Store in L.A. back in the day, have to do with the original station being called the Comedy Channel?
1: (laughs) That's a story that's never been told until my book, I think. Mitzi Shore was running a very famous comedy club on the West Coast. And when we announced at a very high-profile press conference that we were calling this thing the Comedy Channel, we got a letter from Mitzi Shore and her lawyer saying, you know what, we use the Comedy Channel. That's what we call our internal television feed. So when people are sitting there waiting for the show to start, we run what we call the Comedy Channel. And it shows, you know, past shows, past comedians, other stuff. So we don't really want you to call it the Comedy Channel. And we are going to make that a thing meaning cease and desist. Now, at the time she told us this, we were pretty far down the road. (laughs) And what that means is we produced a lot of materials for air that said Comedy Channel. And the last thing we really wanted to do was give up that name because how perfect a name is Comedy Channel for a comedy channel?
0: It's as good as the Discovery Channel, right?
1: As good as the Discovery Channel, as good as any channel that was being named in those days, they tried to name it what it was. So I did not want to relinquish that name. We called in the lawyers, they started fighting. And it wasn't really going in our direction. So to make a long story short, we decided or the lawyers decided that we would try and buy Mitzi Shore out. And they put an offer together and they were about to send her the offer. And before they sent her the offer, she called up and she said, you know what, life's too short. I'm going to drop this suit. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Which apparently, I didn't know Mitzi very well at that point, but that was classic Mitzi Shore. So I will say the lawyers took complete credit for the whole thing, <laughs> HBO lawyers. They were like, "Hey, we won. <laughs> it's like, uh, well, it's the other guy folded is what happened. Fight.
0: She was tired of making somebody else's life miserable. She was ready to do it to somebody else. So you guys got the pass, I guess.
1: You know what? I think it was just because, look, she was serious. She liked doing what she was doing. She realized that HBO was going to do this one way or another. She wasn't sure what she was going to get out of it. She figured, let's
0: just move on. It is interesting that you chose to deny the money, though. Well, just to be
1: clear, and Mitzi died a few years ago. Yes. So she's not going to regret hearing this at this point. But the offer was never made. She folded before the offer was made.
0: Wow. Yeah, okay. Interesting, huh? That makes a little bit more sense then. So things were obviously bound to go wrong before the launch, and something else did about eight weeks out. What happened? Why was Woody Allen involved, and how did you find a way around it?
1: What happened is the whole scheme of using clips, which everybody thought was just a brilliant idea because it was inexpensive almost fell apart. And the reason it almost fell apart is because, as I mentioned, the Directors Guild Union, which had promised us that they thought this was okay and that we could use anything we wanted as long as we gave credit to the movie or the show that it was from, changed their mind. They came back to us eight weeks before the channel launched and said, you know something? We changed our mind. Our board voted on it and they did not approve it. The Woody Allen part, there was a rumor that Woody Allen was the person who objected. I don't have that as fact, and it was never written down. But I remember hearing it, and I thought, man, how could the Woodman do this to us, man? I mean, it's (laughs) such a great idea. So anyway, we were faced with that huge hurdle. Basically, 90% of the clips we had prepared and wanted to use were unusable.
0: You guys finally did get to launch day. What was that day like, the lead up and then actually getting your baby on the air?
1: Well, for me, it was a singular moment. I can't tell you how personal this whole thing was to me, partly because I had been thinking about it for so long and I loved comedy, partly because I thought it was such a great idea and it really had gotten traction with the industry. I'd seen comedians grateful that we were doing a channel for them. And finally, I felt responsible. There was one of my co-workers from the comedy programming department guy named Stu Smiley, who had 15 years on me in terms of experience in the comedy business, every time he saw me, he said, Hey, it's the guy with the big idea. <laughs> and, you know, it reminded me that there were a lot of people looking in my direction if this didn't go very well. Or if it did go well, they would still be looking in my direction. But I felt I had a lot at stake. So that first day, you know, that day we launched was a pretty frightening and exciting moment for me all at once.
0: You guys did have some original programming early on, including something called Short Attention Span Theater, which included a guy who was co-hosting by the name of John Stewart. You got to see pretty early the type of person John Stewart was. How so?
1: First of all, John Stewart was a terrific comedian. I mean, every time he was on the air, everybody was looking because he was so funny and so watchable and so personable. Secondly, he's very smart. And that was important. And the third thing, and I think this is what you're referencing, is he was honest and he cared about other people. And the incident I described is one where his co-host, whose name was Patty Rossborough, who I thought was terrific, actually, was let go. And we told her basically before we told John, so there was no warning to him. Now, in those days, listen, you know, it's corporate. (laughs) It's the suits against the talent. It's all of that stuff. But John was very, very upset. I mean, he was livid. He said, you can't just do that. And it was all the things you think about, John, that indignation that comes when he thinks somebody or something has been wronged. And I was asked to go down and explain to John, listen, we're sorry. This is what we're thinking. This is what happened. And it was my first real in-depth conversation with him. And I really that's when I really got to like the guy I mean, because he was so protective of Patty. He said she was my partner. We were good on air. Nobody told me you should have at least discussed this with me. That is so mean. I mean, he went on and on. (laughs) And I realized what a special, special guy he was.
0: Was Mystery Science Theater 3000 the crown jewel of the comedy channel?
1: Mystery Science Theater 3000 was our initial cult hit, and it was one of the things that kept things going in the early months when the skies were really darkening for Comedy Channel. It's a funny story, too, how we got it. It basically came in the mail.
0: I have to admit, you gave me a Santa Claus is not real moment with regards to MST. You mean to tell me that MST wasn't purely ad-libbed? Those robots, those puppets weren't coming up with things off the cuff? (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's true. But I will say this. I sat in on some writers meetings. These are the funniest guys in the world. I mean, that was my takeaway. And what they were doing was they were ad libbing as the film was going by. And they would do that a couple of times. And they'd record it and somebody would take notes and then they'd decide what the funniest stuff was. Believe me, they could have done it live without any problem at all. They're very, very funny guys. They're still around doing uh, riff tracks.
0: Less than six months after you guys launched, it was the start of the Cable Comedy Wars on April 1st, 1990. The Comedy Channel versus Viacom's new channel called Ha! with an exclamation point. Who had the programming and overall advantage in this fight, Art?
1: First of all, I'll point out that my first lesson from festival was never underestimate the competition. What happened with Ha! Is when we announced our channel, the Comedy Channel, in that high profile press conference in Los Angeles. A day later, MTV Networks put out a press release saying they too were launching a channel. So this was one of the most brilliant competitive responses I've seen. Basically, they had nothing. They probably hadn't been talking about it. They probably hadn't been paying too close attention. Suddenly, they're in it. So it made me nervous, I have to say. It made me nervous because. Goodness knows MTV was a very successful channel and MTV networks, they had Nickelodeon, they had and I mean, they knew how to make channels. So they were formidable competition. What we had on them was six months because they really hadn't started doing anything. So by the time they launched, we were up for six months. They launched. We had already been told that we weren't that good. Then they launched and they were told that they weren't that good. I mean, nobody thought that these channels were... The most fantastic thing that ever happened to comedy.
0: Less than a year into network launch, and thanks to some disheartening conversations with other key people in the network, you knew that the comedy channel was in trouble. So you actually wrote a 45 page plan of action to save it prior to taking your first vacation in a long time to hang out with your fiance's family in Colorado. Two days into the trip, You get called by Dick, who's telling you that Michael Fuchs is calling an emergency meeting and that you actually had to be there to present this plan of action, thus keeping him from pulling the plug. What was the gist of this plan? You know what?
1: I kind of think of it as a groundhog's egg kind of plan. You know, when you keep doing things and you see what's working and you see what's not working and you say, "Okay, let's do the things that are working more and the things that aren't working less. It was really a matter of saying, "Okay, here's what we're going to do. Stand-up comedy is working best because it's kind of an eye magnet. So let's up the stand-up comedy in the meantime. That was thing number one. Thing number two was the clips were kind of not doing so great, partly because we had a very limited selection at that point. Remember, we'd been turned down by the union, so we didn't have a whole lot of clips on the air. And I said, look, going forward, we're going to have to find some series television. Let's find some great series television. Let's find some great movies. And let's do a little more of that. There were other sort of technical suggestions about how we should program and what the schedule should look like. It got to 45 pages because I think I went from soup to nuts on trying to adjust everything. Whatever was in there basically made an impression on everybody.
0: The comedy wars ended in a stalemate at the end of 1990 when it was announced that the comedy channel was merging with Ha. That was obviously understandably disappointing for you. What was your proudest achievement of the comedy channel?
1: My proudest achievement of the comedy channel was putting the comedy network in the world. I think I mentioned earlier that the comedians were so happy that we created a channel that was really paying tribute to them and their craft and was also providing a place for innovative comedy like MST3000, which would have had nowhere else to go. I mean, that just would have been dead on arrival at every other network. I was so proud that we had this and comedians were hanging around. They would go down to the studio and hang out, talk and try and pitch some stuff or just talk to people. I got to know a lot of comedians that way. It was really that, the fact that I had consolidated the industry a little bit, because previously comedians hung out at comedy clubs and there's a million all over the country. Now there was a central place for comedy. That's what I thought was best.
0: You end up surviving the merger and get dubbed as the head of programming, which is something that you shared with a guy named Mike Klinghofer, who came over from Ha. Wisely, you guys actually split responsibilities up. What were you in charge of?
1: Well, interestingly, I was in charge of everything but original programming. Mike got that because Mike was a producer. So he felt more at home making sure that the original programming was produced well. I got on-air promotion which to me was extremely important to describing what the channel was and acquisitions. So as I talked about, we had to get some more programming on the air and that had to be licensed from existing programmers or people who came in saying, we produced some programming, would you like to license it?
0: For legal reasons, this new channel needed a name that had nothing to do with the comedy channel Or Ha, How did you end up with Comedy Central, and what does it have to do with words like Big and Acme?
1: (laughs) We hired some firms to help us decide what the new name was. I think we were crestfallen from the comedy side that Comedy Channel wasn't going to be the name. And the Ha people were crestfallen that it wasn't going to be Ha, so we had to look for something else. Some guys came in and gave us a big pitch on what the channel name should be. And they came up with a list of things. And one of the things was big. And we said, big, that's the whole thing. And I said, yeah, big, that's (laughs) going to be the name of the channel. It's really, you know, they gave us a few other names. Acme was one that I actually recognized had a relationship to comedy because Acme was the corporation that Roadrunner bought all his dynamite and other contraptions from. But that was their big idea. And at one point they said, you know, listen, We want this channel to be, as you do, Comedy Central. But of course, we'd never use that name because why? It's too on the nose. You don't do it that way. And we sort of looked at each other like, all right, these guys seem to know better. So we went out and tested a few names by sending out a quick survey. And we only had four names, I think. So somebody said, well, I better throw in a couple other names. So we said, throw in Comedy Central just as another name. The thing came back like 92% of the people (laughs) loved Comedy Central. Nobody liked the other ones. And so we just said, okay, we found the name. And that's how it happened.
0: At the end of 1991, you're feeling pretty good about things with Comedy Central. But you were challenged by the company's bigwigs to make some noise, to get mischievous, to help turn a profit. What did you guys end up doing and how difficult was it to pull off?
1: (laughs) Well, I think that was one of the great breakthroughs that Comedy Central had. The idea was we wanted to do something topical that would get attention from the press. So we decided that we would, not unlike MST, MST had people sitting there commenting on movies. We wanted people to watch us commenting on something live. And so the something live we chose was the presidential State of the Union address. We were going to have comedians sitting during the hour-plus presidential State of the Union address and making jokes, basically, about what was being said by the president.
0: I love this about the idea. It actually earns more free publicity courtesy of network TV posturing and trying to be tough asses about you guys actually getting that feed.
1: The whole idea that Comedy Central, which was not at that time anywhere near a news organization, we were sort of this upstart wise guy, started asking to be given the pool feed so that we could cover the uh, State, State of, the of the Union address. Yeah. And the lawyers from the other challenges said, no, CNN, no, ABC, no, we're not going to do it. So we had really a moment of terror. We figured we put all this advertising out and we couldn't get the pool feed. <laughs> but as luck would have it, somebody interceded. I don't even remember who that was, but somebody on high, probably a Time Warner, said give him the feed. So we got the feed, we did the broadcast, and it was a tremendous success. It was Very funny. It got a lot of notice from the press.
0: And I believe the first host was Al Frank, and There actually was a last minute scare with the State of the Union undressed. What happened?
1: That was the craziest moment of my life. We were standing there about to go on the air. Maybe it was a couple hours before we were going on the air. And somebody said, okay, we're going on the air live in two hours, you know, let's do this. And Al Franken said, wait a second, what what'd you say, live? We're doing this live? I thought we were taping this. They told me we were taping this. And he walked out of the room. You know, can you make this stuff up? So we looked around and the person who is the head of talent, uh, a woman named Lori Zacks, who was really terrific at her job, said, I got this. She ran after Al. I don't know what she said to him or how she said it, but he came back in and he did the show. But that was a moment of
0: terror. Undressed really set the stage for the first of what became a regular program during election season, Indecision 1992. Why did these things work so well so quickly, Art?
1: I think that they worked well because nobody had ever done anything like this. This was the prelude to what The Daily Show with Jon Stewart became. As a matter of fact, John Stewart was involved in some of the convention coverage. So the whole idea that Comedy Central, this upstart channel, was going to get out there and insert itself into the political conversation by making wisecracks, essentially, was really kind of unusual to everybody. So we got a tremendous amount of press coverage and we got viewership. People just checked in to see what we were saying. Now, again, when you have guys like Al Franken and Jon Stewart, you know, these are smart guys and certainly politically astute. They had funny things to say, but they also had interesting things to say. So the whole thing, as we were rolling it out, we realized that the whole idea of doing comedy and news looked like a good one.
0: And in that vein, you further legitimize Comedy Central by hiring Bill Maher to host a show that eventually becomes politically incorrect. How'd your meeting go with Bill to offer him the job out in L.A.?
1: Bill came up in his car. It was a little sports car. I had to ride in the back with my knees on my face <laughs> while my partner, a guy named Mitch Semmel, rode in the front. We went to a diner. We didn't know what Bill wanted to talk about. We knew we wanted to pitch a show. And we went to the diner. He sat down and he said, look, I want to do a show, a talk show where people actually talk, not where they're promoting their book, not where they're promoting their next movie, not where they're saying stupid stuff. I want them to talk. And I want to call it politically incorrect because I plan to cross the line an awful lot and make a lot of trouble. We bought the concept on the spot.
0: Unfortunately, you were pulled from programming to marketing a few weeks after Politically Incorrect debuted. How frustrating was that and why did it happen?
1: It was surprising as much as frustrating. I thought I was doing a heck of a job in programming and so did my boss. I think this came from higher on up. And the issue was that they wanted someone with more Los Angeles experience. So I didn't have any Los Angeles experience, having never worked in Hollywood. And so they said, all right, we'll move on over to marketing. It was frustrating. It was a little disappointing, but also it turned out to be a great experience and a great way to influence the direction of the channel from there on, on
0: You credit on. Alan Kay for helping you learn your way as a marketer. What simple advice did he give that helped provide you with clarity in this new position?
1: Alan really was my mentor when it came to advertising and promotion. He said, look, advertising is easy. Figure out what you want to say. Say it in a simple way and make it memorable. That was the whole thing. And every time I saw a commercial after that or any advertising or any marketing we did, I evaluated against that. What were we trying to say? And did we say it in a memorable way?
0: Your first big campaign was for, ironically enough, I guess, politically incorrect. What did you do? And how did Bill Maher respond to that?
1: We did a bus side campaign in some major cities, including New York. So, of course, Bill got to see it. We did not show it to Bill beforehand, and that was probably my recommendation because I knew that Bill could be kind of cranky about things. We put the bus sides up. Bill saw them, and he called me up the next day, and he said, that is the worst campaign I have ever seen. It has nothing to do with my show. It's a bad representation of me. It makes the channel look stupid, and I want you to take it down, and I want you fired so i said well we're not going to take it down i'm sorry you don't like it and maybe we should have shown it to you first but you want me fired and he said yes i've already talked to some people i'm trying to have you fired (laughs) so i hung up slightly rattled i didn't think i would get fired and i didn't get fired but from that moment on bill wasn't my best friend
0: not only did you not get fired you kind of got the last laugh on bill too correct
1: Alan Kay called me up and said, hey, we're nominated for a big award, big advertising award for that bus side campaign for Bill Maher's Politically Incorrect. And I remember putting my head in my hand saying, oh, my goodness, anything (laughs) but that. I got to go through that again with Bill. So we go to the award ceremony. And before we get there, Alan says, this will kill you. He says, guess who's hosting the award ceremony? I said, I don't know. He says, Bill Maher. I said, you're kidding. I said, great. So we're sitting at the table. It comes up that we're up for the award. Bill opens the envelope, Hollywood style, and says, the award goes to Comedy Central and Alan Kay. And we were hysterical that Bill was actually giving us an award for his campaign that he hated. And he was so funny on stage because he kept saying, yeah, that's a great campaign. That's a campaign for my show.
0: (laughs) And uh, slightly more serious note, you received a phone call Just before Christmas in 1995, why was it so troubling?
1: The phone call was from my boss, who was the president of the channel, and he told me that Michael Fuchs, the chairman of HBO, who was the chairman of the board of Comedy Central, wanted me fired. And I said, well, geez, that's a surprise. He never said anything to me or mentioned that he didn't like what I was doing, directly or indirectly. And he said, no, no, he he wants you fired. He kind of indicated that if you did something spectacular, then you could save your job. I said, what do you mean spectacular? He said, I don't know, just something spectacular. So you better start thinking about it. So I hung up the phone. I told my wife, this may be it, (laughs) 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 because I had to come up with something spectacular, or I was going to be fired by Michael Fuchs. And we went from there.
0: You actually turned to your friends in the Buzz Committee for help. What was the Buzz Committee and what did they come up with?
1: The Buzz Committee was like the greatest experiment and the greatest invention at Comedy Central. At one point, probably a couple years before this, we decided that we wanted to get people from around the network together who were funny, who weren't in programming. They're just funny guys from on-air promotion or we had one guy from traffic because everybody loved comedy at the channel. And we were just going to sit around and Shoot the breeze and try and come up with some funny, interesting, pressworthy ideas. Hence, buzz. We wanted to generate buzz for the channel. So I went to the buzz committee, which I was a part of and sort of the head of in my role. And I said, look, we got to come up with something spectacular. <laughs> I sort of passed the problem to them. And they came up with something great.
0: They came up with an ad. How did Michael Fuchs respond to this ad?
1: Well, we did an ad. We did it as a full-page ad in some of the papers around the country. It was a full-page ad in the New York Times. Now, remember, a full-page ad in the New York Times in those days was probably, I don't know, $75,000. I mean, it was ridiculously expensive. So this was a big bet on my part, that this would be the spectacular thing that would get Michael off my back, essentially, and leave me alone. So we did the ad pretty much... A few days later, there was a board meeting. I was at the board meeting. Michael, of course, walks in the room and he sits down and I expect to get some kind of like, hey, Art, we saw the ad. Great. You know, wow, that's really cool. Because everybody liked it. Everybody was talking about it. And instead, he looked at me and he said, Art, if you're going to spend $75,000 on a full page ad in the New York Times, don't you think you could give me a phone call, a heads up? and say, we're going to be in the New York Times tomorrow so that I would know in advance. And he did that in front of the entire board. And I said, oh, man, are you kidding me? I can't even do that and get Michael to think that it was a good idea. So that was a pretty terrible moment. Now, interestingly, I thought to myself at the time, wait a second. I don't work directly for Michael. My boss works directly for Michael. He's the president of the channel. Why isn't my boss coming to my defense and said, well, you know, Michael, I should have called you. It was my mistake but he didn't. And I was left sort of swinging in the breeze. Not a great moment.
0: Well, you learn a little bit later on why, because of this perpetual tension with Michael was kind of ruining you in that moment. You took your brother's advice who said that you just needed to speak with him about it. How did that meeting with Michael go?
1: Well, it went surprisingly. I had to really kind of get myself together and be a little bit courageous to walk into Michael and say, I understand you're trying to get me fired or you want me fired. But I did it. I went in, I sat down. He said, Hey, what's up, Art? And I said, I understand you want me fired. And he said, what? And I said, I've heard that you want me fired. He said, I don't want you fired. Who told you that? And I said, well, my boss told me that. He said, oh, my goodness. He said, did he tell you that I wanted you fired? I don't want you fired. I want him fired. And then he said, don't you think we should fire him? And that was a real moment of terror. And I said, look, I didn't come down here to trash my boss. I just came down here to find out why you want to be fired. I'm glad to hear you don't. He said, but Art, don't you think we should fire him? And I... (laughs) I didn't move. And he took that as a yes, I guess. So (laughs) I got out of there without actually trashing my boss, but I saw what was going on. I think my boss was probably told by Michael to come up with something spectacular. And he passed that along to me.
0: I did want to ask one more question about the State of the Union undressed, because I think in either year two or three, Dennis Miller was hosting, and because State of the Union Undressed was live, things can inevitably go wrong. They actually did with Dennis Miller as the host. What happened?
1: Well, Dennis Miller was doing it. He was doing a fine job. I was sitting in the back in the green room watching. It was across from the studio. And the State of the Union address that year went very, very long. So long that at one point, Dennis said, look, I got to go to the bathroom. But (laughs) I'm live on TV. I don't know what to do. He didn't know the building or anything. He didn't know where the bathroom was. So he just stood up, walked out. There was a garbage can next to the door of the studio where he walked out of. And he proceeded to take a whiz in the garbage can <laughs> while he was mic'd on the air talking about the presidential State of the Union address. So he finished up in the garbage can. <laughs> and I was sitting back there again with Glory Zachs, the head of talent. And we were saying, oh, this isn't going to turn out so well. But there was nothing we could do. Dennis went back in there, trooper, finished the broadcast, did great, came out, ran out screaming, I just killed my career. (laughs) And he ran all the way down the hall, found the men's bathroom, ran into the men's bathroom and wouldn't come out. So Lori and I are standing outside the bathroom. I said, Lori, you're the head of talent. So it's your job to go in there and tell him it didn't ruin his career and everything's going to be fine. She said, you know what? I'm not going into a men's bathroom. I draw the line there. You go into the men's bathroom. You tell him it didn't ruin his career. So that's what I did. I went in and told Dennis that it was fine, that people didn't see it. They just heard it. I'm sure people were talking about it, but it was part of the broadcast. It was funny. It's live TV. Things happened. And he eventually stood up and walked out. Everything turned out pretty much okay.
0: I hope all these years later, he can appreciate that very naked gun moment in his career.
1: I don't know if he appreciates it or not. I haven't heard from him about it. We'll see what happens if the book comes out and he reads it.
0: So things shifted when your boss was let go after Michael realized just how he was conducting his business. Where did you end up after that?
1: Well, one thing you know is when your boss gets fired, you're probably a short timer. And that's what happened. I left Comedy Central shortly after that. But before I left, I was transferred to what was billed as a new business development department. But there was no new business development or a department. So they were just kind of benching me until I wandered out of the building. But we did some interesting things down there. I was actually put there with another guy, one of the guys from the Buzz Committee named Vinny Favalli. And the two of us did the first iteration of Comedy Central's website. Websites were new those days. Nobody had an idea of what they should be other than a brochure. And we decided we'd make the Comedy Central website funny. So we did. And we had a great time.
0: You did that. You also were responsible for publishing the first book that Comedy Central was ever responsible for, but alas, it did not save your job. You came to realize just before actually getting let go, what was about to happen? What was the day like when you were let go from this company that you were so responsible for starting?
1: Comedy Central was very personal to me, and I, uh, I guess it comes as no surprise that I felt really, really bad, even though I knew it was coming. I was hoping that it wasn't coming, that they'd leave me there until I found something else to do. But they didn't. They decided to fire me. And I had never been fired before. And I always thought that people who got fired were people who did something wrong or screwed something up or displeased the boss in some horrendous way. But then I realized people aren't fired for just those reasons. People are fired for other reasons, like my reason. And that was that I'd been there for a long time. I really had a good idea of what the channel was. I'd been a big part of making it what it was. And the new president of the channel wanted his team in there and didn't want me to be part of it.
0: The subtitle of your memoir, Art, is How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Have you been able to regain your sense of humor? And if so, what was a big reason why?
1: Well, let me say that the title of the book, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor, really came from one meeting we had with Michael Fuchs, maybe three or four months after the channel started. And Michael was livid. The channel was not the success he'd hoped to be. As a matter of fact, I think he was embarrassed by what the channel was and he wanted us to fix it or kill it. He didn't know what to do. So he called a few of us in and he looked at us and he said, you know, it took the comedy channel to make me lose my sense of humor. And I looked around and none of us was laughing and Michael wasn't laughing. And I thought, yeah, we all lost our sense of humor as we're trying to put this thing together. And that's where the title comes from. Of course, everybody's sense of humor came back instantly, or at least 20 minutes after the meeting. But it really did describe the difficulty of putting together an undertaking like this. It was all about laughter and all about having fun and all about comedy and how difficult and how intense it was to try and get this thing up and running and successful. It seemed like somebody was always throwing a big boulder at us. That's why the title included that phrase.
0: Art Bell is a former media exec who's best known for creating, building, and managing successful cable TV shows. This includes Comedy Central, and experience he details in the new book, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Art, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this entertaining book.
1: Oh, I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you for listening today. You can check out all of our episodes at BooksOnPod.com or by searching Books On Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please do leave a five-star rating and review. It helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.